Welcome to Write Good, the podcast that helps you write good. I'm Raquel S. Benedict, the most dangerous woman in speculative fiction. Many people want to write YA or middle grade fiction or children's books, but it's harder than you might think. Kids know when they're being talked down to and they don't like it. How do you simplify your prose without making it flat? How do you approach difficult topics in an age-appropriate manner? How do you write fiction that's accessible to young readers while still challenging them and expanding their horizons? With us today is Irish YA fantasy novelist Celine Kiernan, author of the Moorhawk trilogy Into the Grey and Resonance. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks for inviting me. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself and your work? So I've been writing, well, I've been writing my whole life, as most writers have, but I was first published in 2007 or 8. Um, so I've seen a, a lot of changes within the market of YA and middle grade since I've even I first came on mm. and a lot of changes to, to the actual business itself. It's changed a lot since I started. I think it was just on the cusp of change. Right. When I was lucky enough to first get published, I've seen it sort of expand very much into own voices, which I think is a very positive thing. Yeah, it's been it's been an interesting journey. I started off, though, I don't tend to write with a particular market in mind. Mm. So I, I started off, although my characters are very young, always actually very young, I, I started off thinking it would be um, marketed, my book work would be marketed as adult books. I had no real, I had no real understanding of the business at all. Hmm. So it, it has actually been interesting for me from a marketing point of view, a business point of view, to see the way the um, industry itself treats books that come in uh, that they consider YA and, and middle grade. I've, I've recently moved into middle grade writing. so I see. So you said you saw yourself as really writing for adults, but the industry decided that your books were more like YA. Why, why is that, do you think? I think it's more that I didn't have a concept of there being a marketing, an idea of your books being marketed to a certain, I don't know why. <laughs> I was in the film business for years. Now I, I understand films being marketed to a certain audience. But when I was writing, I was just exploring ideas that I myself was interested in and, you know, playing around in, in worlds that I was interested in. I had a little bit of difficulty getting my first book published because mm. although um, publishers would write back to me and say, we really love this, this is great, it's too complex for children. Ah. And and the I think because the two characters were... Um, teenage boys young teenage boys they they if that was the market they saw it going to I see they didn't see it going to adult and as a consequence they it was it would have been rejected because it didn't fit and, I, and I'm I kind of come up again my poor agent because every book I produce is quite liminal in that way right 
I think that the, the problems with the first book were young adult characters, but not written in what, what was considered at the time. I think it's changed a lot. Yeah. A, a young adult manner and so it would it was rejected but then yeah. I was lucky enough Irish publishers are really quite adventurous when it comes to younger uh, readers nice so are Australian publishers actually I've found and I was lucky enough that an Irish publisher called the O'Brien Press who have given a lot of adventurous writers their start they took on my next project which was the Moorhawk trilogy nice it, yeah and it it was just as political and as complex and as dark as, say, Into the Grey, although very different. It, it was set in a fantasy setting, so perhaps e- they saw it as easier to pitch. Hmm. But they took a risk on it. It was a really good success. It, it, it sold really well. And then as a consequence, the book that had been rejected prior to it, publishers kind of went, oh, so kids do get this kind of stuff. <laughs> oh, nice. They took a risk on on that and it ended up winning, you know, a ton of awards and stuff. Yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah, I'm very lucky. Now, that is something I noticed about your, your work. You sent me some of your work and I was reading Resonance and like right from the get go, Resonance starts with some really like dark stuff. There's like there's demons, there's animal death, there's child abuse. Like it's really, really heavy stuff. So how do you approach subject matter like that in a way that's appropriate for that age group? I'm not sure that I do. I like every book I take or every book I write, I've written it for a specific reason. Mm. And the reason is that it is dealing with, say, themes or subject that I have a need to explore, mm. which means I often explore themes and subjects that are, um, they, they would be a little more esoteric. I see. And I like to come at stuff from all different angles, which is why I, I tend to, I sometimes have quite large casts, although there's always only one or two main characters. I like to come at those themes and subjects from all different angles. So I don't, I'm not offering any answers or anything, although I have like my own central moral core. I'm not writing, I don't set out to write a book in order to teach a lesson to anybody. I set out in a way to explore stuff for myself so when the writing process starts I'm not thinking how do I tell this or how do I explore this for a certain age group I see I'm just thinking that something interests me and I'm I'm interested in exploring it and I often wondered why I'm drawn to younger characters and the only reason I can come up with is because they are they're not blank slates but they're the people whose eyes are possibly the most open in society i see so they they would they would come to a lot of things with less preconceptions or less luggage maybe than adult characters in terms of i tend to throw them into a situation that they feel obliged to explore or fix which when you come to those kind of situations as an adult, you tend to come with thinking you have all the answers anyway. And perhaps that's why I choose younger characters. I see. But it does mean that the books then, in once they're done, the business end of it is how the hell do we sell this and who do we sell it to? Mm. So in terms of when I arrive at the publishing, at the businessing business end of having written a book I do arrive with very complex books themselves I present my agent and then she presents the publishers with quite complex books even the middle grade books deal with quite they would be quite political for example and you know they would they would be exploring a lot of uh, subtext 
but I try and write. I do because it entertains me. I write stuff that uh, I write in an entertaining manner. Mm. So the this subtext, the themes, the explorations of death, war, politics, self-determination, they are things that would be explored via fantasy settings or via supernatural settings, always with a real world background. And I think when you write fantasy, because it's a time honoured way of dealing with our current world is to write fantasy versions of it. I don't mean third world fantasy. I mean, you know, like magic realism. Right. I have a very good friend, uh, an Australian writer, who said that she finds it's a way of taking half a step back so that perhaps the reader doesn't feel as confronted or as spotlighted by the by the issues. Yeah. And it allows people's minds to open to them. I see. So um, in terms of theme and and in terms of subject matter. I've never had any particular kickback. There was, I think I've had to, I, uh, very early with my first editor, there was, I think at the time with that person who was a very good editor, don't get me wrong, I'm not in any way dissing her. She's uh, actually died since I worked with her, um, but she was, a, she was a very good editor and very experienced. But I think sometimes her approach to my work was to make it safe for school reading. Mm. And so we got a little... I. She and I didn't see eye to eye on on a few things. She removed a lot of references to religion, for example. And my texts are always very, um, they're quite critical of religion. Right. Or or they're quite open eyed about religion and how people's, how it affects people's lives. Or um, So re- religion would be referenced quite a lot in my work. Right. I would have quite a lot of blasphemy, for example, which it isn't it isn't um it isn't a problem really in European text but I know sometimes it's a problem in American text for people to be like yeah taking the Lord's name in vain and that kind of stuff yeah Americans at least for younger readers are like super uptight about religion or religious references she would have attempted to tone the text down in that manner and also to remove a lot of swearing there was there's always quite a lot, except for my middle grade work, there would be quite a lot of sexual referencing. Right. In that, in our first book together, I think she was of the mindset where, oh, we, we couldn't have that discussed in a classroom setting. So she would just, she tried to take them all out. And it took, that was really my one and only struggle in terms of that kind of thing being censored. I see. They're like one of one of the characters is is um, a Muslim in the Morhawk trilogy, and uh, like it becomes more obvious as the books go on that he was raised as a Muslim, even though most of the people in the books, including himself, are not particularly engaged with formal religion. So I did get a couple of mo- uh, editors saying, "Oh, do we have to refer to him? Do we have to refer to Islam?" And mm. um, because he's he's referred to as Muslim, which was would be the old 1500s word. And like, can we not come up with a different word? And I'm like, what? Why are you hiding? Right. Like, it's not like it's it's not like it's not obvious that Razi is a Muslim, for God's sake. Right. So um, things like that, very uh, a kind of timidness and a, a timidness in the early days. It's not so much now to um, descriptions of race. So in Moorhawk, for example, am I babbling on or is no, it's OK. Go okay. On. Oh, yeah. So in Moorhawk, <laughs> for example, I I. Like, I mean, that was my, they were my first books. So I was just so undisciplined as a writer. I've changed quite, I've changed quite a bit, but I was just 
splashing in every word puddle that I could find. Like everything is so richly described. Like it's just it's just texture upon texture in terms of text. So there's like constant descriptions. But it, it really struck me by surprise that every single white character, I could describe them as much as possible down to the last freckle, down to the last curly hair. No one gave a toss. But when it came to Razi, who is a dark skinned Arab with like curly hair, my God, every descriptor was taken out of the book. Wow. Every single one of them. I had to go back and fight for every descriptor, despite the fact that in, in, in the same book, the white characters were described possibly even twice as much as he was. But because he was a dark skinned character, and I remember one editor saying to me, we shouldn't be discussing his race if race is not an issue. Mm. That I mean, that was just so ridiculous. Yeah, I don't think that's the same anymore, though. I don't. I would hate to think it was that there was the same tentativeness um, about describing um, pe- people of color in text when it's done in the manner that you know you're describing everyone equally. I don't mean that their their color becomes a character trait. I mean that it's you know right. You, you happen to have a descriptive text. Right. Yeah, so that I did find tentativeness in descriptions of religion, tentativeness in descriptions of race. Very little. I was asked to remove very little violence, uh, particularly not violence against women. Surprisingly enough, in The Crowded Shadows, which is the middle book of the Mohawk trilogy, the, the female characters, there's attempted rape and there's rape murder of a child. And they weren't removed, but there was also male rape uh, of one of the main characters. And that was removed. Now, I'm actually not I'm not I'm not too sorry that I did remove it. But the reasons for removing it on their behalf were so strange. It was they didn't seem to even see the female rape. It was almost, uh, you know, accepted that that is part of a female story right you know a, a woman's story whereas when it came to the uh, male character being raped by the same people for the same reason and <laughs> um, I was asked to remove it because because the readers might not like him anymore oh man isn't that crazy that's bleak that is bleak wow um but I did remove it and I have to say in the end I I wasn't sorry because the books were very long anyway and I had to like take out an awful lot of stuff right and you know it was just one it wasn't a it was it was a story I could tell in a different manner right so but yeah they they, the the reasons for taking stuff out are often not what you'd expect they're not they're often not to do with wanting to protect children's psyche or not wanting to discuss a certain subject but they were more to do with keeping things marketable I think if that makes sense yeah, I can see that if if there's too much controversial stuff in a book, then it won't get on those recommended reading lists in schools, and you'll miss out on a lot of sales. But all of them are anyway. You know, yeah. they went on; they all went on to be on recommended reading books. And and it's funny, like they this was this was way back in two thousand and eight, and uh, like it's it's really interesting now to see the kind of really excellent YA stuff that's out there now, discussing very very important political st- stuff and just discussing women women's place in society and you know like things like um like the uh the prison industrial complex in moonrise for example or race political race relations in tug you know uh there's an there's a huge upswelling of really marvelous feminist writing at the moment Uh, yeah it's 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 heartening to see 
uh, the lack of fear in YA fiction at the moment. That's cool. Yeah. Sorry, that is the sound of my cat messing with a water dish. He's being noisy. <laughs> <laughs> so what what would you there are a lot of people who say that like scary stuff and dark stuff and, and heavy stuff, things like sexual violence or or death or or blasphemy, that reading it isn't healthy for young audiences and we have to protect them from it. How do you respond to that? I suppose it depends. Um what what kind of stuff they're talking about you know like uh, if you're discussing that kind of stuff in a pornographic manner where the um the sexual violence for example or the or the the horror or the murder is purely there to titillate for want of a better word do you know what i mean to go look yeah. how gross this is or you right. know do you, um i can understand what what people might be saying I suspect that that would be quite rare uh, in children's, you know, people who who write for younger readers. I I don't know though. I, I have no idea how much of that particular kind of horror or uh, violence would be offered to publishers. I see. Um, but in in my experience, the the kind of uh, sexual violence or or um, horror or discussions of, you know, man's brutality to man um, that are presented in children's fiction that I can see are very thoughtful in terms of the reasons why they're presented. I don't mean in a didactic reason. I simply mean in what the writer themselves is trying to explore. Um, even in, you know, entertaining, throwaway entertainment, which which I have no problem with, the violence and stuff, it, it, does, it tends to be a lot more thoughtful than, for example, say, even Marvel, right? You know where they're going. They're going right. to the cinema and looking at you know the good guys blowing shit up all the time, or where sexual violence is a is a uh, is a be all and the end all of a, a, a woman character's background. They don't tend to be that, or or at least the fiction I'm aware of doesn't tend to be that thoughtless, if you know what I mean. And when stuff like that is presented in a manner that is is thoughtful and reflects the world that the young person lives in, I, I can't see I can't see how one would object to it. Reading's a choice. Yeah. You know, like you don't reading is a choice and children live in the world we live in. And if they are aware as I was a as a child of the deep darknesses in this world and they want a way they don't want to be lied to they want a way of understanding and exploring it then that isn't um exploitative to them it isn't just another horror book I, I think that's only healthy surely now i notice you mentioned that when you write this uh fiction you don't set out to teach a moral lesson directly i i have heard from a lot of of writers and like concerned parents concerned adults that work should for young people should impart a very specific moral lesson like where are you on that debate do you do you think that it's necessary for YA authors or middle grade authors to sort of give us a moral lesson well like morals are very subjective yeah so like whose morals are you hoping will be imparted to your kid I, I assume every parent is hoping their morals will be I think moral lessons geez I think it's more important well let, let's take the word moral out will we 
because okay. like because moral no I don't mean you know cut it out of your editing process <laughs> I just mean let's not discuss it in terms of morals because like morals are so liquid and very often used as a weapon uh, uh, against people you simply don't agree with I think maybe if we're I think maybe our our sole thing that we owe our readers is to be honest with them about our experience of the world and to and to allow them the respect of portraying the world now this sounds weird from a person who writes about you know aliens and werewolves and <laughs> yeah, you, you know but they're aliens and werewolves and stuff that live within a a societal structure that that confront my reader as to what it is they believe and how it is that human beings can come together in all our like multifaceted beliefs and needs and try and make the world something that's habitable and beautiful for each other and ourselves if that's a moral stand you know there you go that's what I'm presenting my kids but I'm not offering any solutions except don't be bastards to each other you know like (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> what what can you do when you're writing a book other than be honest and not exploit your reader because you are if you are writing if your writing is going to end up in young hands you do have a responsibility to not exploit them I think to not to not exploit their fears or their their a per, a perhaps lack of understanding for maybe kids who can't see outside of the bubble they were raised in not exploit that in order for you to become their next great idol or for you to to guide them in a direction that is uh, one direction only. I see. Uh, what do you mean by exploit in this context? Oh, what do I mean by exploit? I mean by instilling unnecessary hatred or or guiding their fears in a way that en- enables them to be manipulated by someone who has control over them or shielding them from the fact that they may not able to fix things on their own and may need people to help them or shield them from the fact that there are people outside their lived experience who are as valid to them but whose experience may challenge them I see do you know what I mean like not 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 let them think that they're the center of the universe when that is damaging to the rest of the universe Mm. that's just one of the things I mean I I see I don't know if I make myself clear I I think I got it I get it do you Thinking in terms of characters, thinking they're the center of the universe. I, I, do you feel like a fair amount of YA does that? Like there are a heck of a whole lot of very popular YA series about like the, the main character who's like the prophet, the chosen hero one, the chosen one who saves the whole world and is super special. Well, look, the chosen one, the chosen one trope isn't isn't confined to children's literature it's everywhere oh that's true from like from like cop shows to to high fantasy shows you know the the fact that there's very little gray area is simply a reflection of the fact that that is the easiest way to write it's it's the most memeable right it's the most straightforward right and it sells it sells really well it sells, yeah, it sells because like to a certain extent, people do just for a lot of the time, their life is 
flipping hard and it's tiring and people want to switch off. And this is what they're given to switch off with. You know, I feel that if we have an opportunity to to make work, if someone is mad enough to want to publish my weird shit, I am going to do I am going to do my utmost to be a, a little bit more complex than that, if you know what I mean. And that's what I mean by not exploiting. I mean, I don't know how I still even have an agent. God bless her heart. (laughs) Because every project I give her, it's like, you know, holy God, I love this, Celine, but my God, how are we going to sell? This won't make any action figures. But nevertheless, you know, I I figure each book I I get published is a blessing to me. And I owe myself to, to make it as... Um, meaningful as possible. Yeah. I mean, whether or not, even though these books I know sound like they might be tough to sell, I mean, reading reading Resonance, I'm just thinking like, man, if I had my hands on this when I was like 12 or 13, I would have been obsessed with this book. Uh-huh. It is Thanks. extremely 12 or 13 year old Raquel's like, oh. Same. <laughs> Same. I mean, I, I, me too. And I couldn't find any books that I wanted to read when I was young. Yeah. Here I am. I'm lucky enough that I somehow keep fooling publishers into publishing me. So that 12 year old me, <laughs> who if she's out there anywhere, might get the books she wants to read. By. I hear that a lot from writers, especially writers of kind of interesting or challenging work. Like so many publishers or agents will say, oh, I love this, but how are we going to sell it? Like, how do you get past that? Like, you know, this thing is good, but you think it won't sell? Yeah. <laughs> How do you get past that? Because I, a lot of my writer friends hear that all the time. Oh, listen, I don't know. I, uh, no. I, I just, I just got lucky. I, I have no clue. I happened to send Morhawk to a. My first agent was this really hard-nosed, brilliant editorial agent. I loved working with her, but she was Russian. Ooh. And you know, I well, she. Well, she was raised on the Russian, uh, you know, she was from some Russian enclave. I, I was just lucky that she had, she was a, a little sidestepped, I think, from the idea that something had to be a certain shape to fit the industry. And I think as well, I was lucky to come in at the time I did, 2007 or 2006. I'm not sure which. It was published in 2008, but you know how slow the business is. Um mm. It was the beginning of the end of the high times, I think, for publishing. Right. And and I think I, I just happened to come in at a time when when there were more brave people than than there were people who who needed to make a whack of money with each book. Right. And and so people were taking, I think, more risks. Uh, that is actually one of the in, incredible things about the publishers who who aim their stuff at YA and middle grade. They are brave. Yeah. They are so brave. And it has a lot to do, I think, with the fact that there are no, you don't have a crime section. You don't have a fantasy section. You don't have a romance section. You just have a kid, a kid section. Right. Right. So as a consequence, they're not, they're not yet channeled into thinking within genre. They're simply thinking, is this a good book? Hmm. You know, uh, for for a, a lot of uh, when you're on the editorial level, a lot of them are thinking, "Is this a good book? Do I enjoy this?" It and then of course it has to go to marketing to see if it'll make any money. Yeah, that kind of is this quality. Um, you know, do I love this book? Is still quite alive within the kids publishing. Yeah, 
but you know I, I think that's why uh, I think that's why sometimes um, women's writing in particular was channeled in because a lot of women particularly genre in genre they they're liminal they're, the stuff right. that they're producing is quite liminal. I think quite a few women who are published as YA now would not have been published as YA before because there was a broader, well, they probably would have had to use a man's name. I'm just, I mean, mm. their work, their work would have been published um, as mainstream. Yeah. I see. Now that's just, huh? that's just my opinion. I see. <laughs> Let's switch gears a little bit and talk a little bit about the generation gap. When you are writing for young people, you're you're reaching across this generation gap. Youth culture is not the same as when we were young. It changes absurdly fast. Kids have different interests, different slang, different values, different attitudes than the generation that came before them. So how do you handle this? Like, do you try to keep up with current trends and risk looking like, how do you do, fellow kids? Or <laughs> do you just decide, like, I'm not even going to bother? Yeah, look, I wasn't even a contemporary kid. You know, I, I, I'm not a contemporary adult. So <laughs> um, that's but there's a lot of really excellent contemporary novels out there. Um, and they're they're written by people who are much, much younger than me. And they're they're writing the lives that they're living now. Um, and they're talking about stuff that is immediate to the world mm. where we're all dealing with the same stuff, which is how to be a human being and I'm not going to pretend that I am that I'm capable of understanding what it means to be a young human being in Paris let alone a young gay human being of color in Paris I can only write things from the life I've li- lived um but I I am I consume a lot of social books I consume a lot of politics and I consume a lot of history and I'm talking about people and you know broad arc social structure and socialism, politics, that kind of stuff is stuff that I'm interested in and human beings as human beings. I tend to write in a historical fantasy setting or in third world fantasy settings and that's how I present my work. Um, It's just one of the many, many meals on the plate. I'm not going to try and write something that I'm I'm incapable of writing. I'm not going to pretend to be what I'm not. Right. And I mean, even if you do try to keep up, even if you write something that is like perfectly contemporary, by the time it goes through this long, slow process of publication, it'll be like all the slang's going to be outdated, the whatever social media app all the characters are on, like, oh, no one uses that anymore. Yeah. Get it. You're out of date already. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the best, the best and the most long lived fiction is the fiction that speaks beyond it speaks to the humanity of the characters as opposed to the wallpaper, if you know what I mean. Harley's climbing into my lap and being distracting. Oh, um, bless. He's being a good boy this time, though. He's very quiet. All right. He's very quiet. Yeah, he's being a good boy this time. He was very naughty last night. <laughs> anyway, 
Now, let's talk a little bit about language. Young people tend to read at a slightly lower like reading level, grade level than adults just because they're they're young. They might have a more limited vocabulary and from what I remember studying linguistics, take learning about first language acquisition, there are certain grammatical structures that kids straight up don't have yet. Like I I believe that they said that you can't fully use or like really fully process the passive voice until adolescence. Do you try to take that into consideration when you write for young audiences? Like how do you handle kind of making your prose accessible, but without making it like flat and simple and boring and, you know, talking down to young people? My last three books were the first that I had written specifically for middle grade. Prior to that, I had just, as I said, I've just written the books and then you know, chuck them at the business and see what they did with them. Right. As a writer, anyway, I think my style has been tightening up mm. uh, with, with every work. So like my first work is, it's excruciating to me to read it back because it's so different to how, oh, no. ah, sure, like you're not expanding <laughs> if you if you, if you haven't changed with each book, then, you know, what are you writing for? But um, um, it's ju- it was just, I'm just so in love with texture when I started off writing. And um, I think I've I've learned as I go along to to just control my words better. I see. If you know what I mean. Like, I'm just, I'm just uh, less likely to give you seven words for cat <laughs> um, than I <laughs> than I used to be you know I enjoy I I loved writing that way and I wouldn't change it because it it of the experience I wouldn't change the experience of having written that way um mm. my writing has become I wouldn't call it spare <laughs> I don't think I'll ever be a spare writer but it has um it has become more pared down as the years go by um but I don't ever stop and go would a person know what that means um I have been asked that during editorial sessions, you know, it has been comments, there have been comments sometimes, you know, would when you're when you're at the stage where your publisher has said, okay, we're pitching this at 12 year olds, right? And Mm-hmm. We're going back and and editing it to perhaps what the questions they ask you, the questions that your editor will ask you. If you're working, if you're lucky enough to work with a really good editor, which for 99.9% of my career, I've had excellent ed- editors, artists nice. in their own right. I've had just such an incredible learning you know, relationship with my editors and the questions that your editor asks you or the suggestions they make are never a bludgeon. They're always a they're always a suggestion. And it is then up to you. They're nearly always right on some level when they ask you stuff. And it's up to you to decide. They know there's something wrong, but they don't quite know what it is. And sometimes they'll offer you a solution and the solution is nearly always wrong. But but the foundation, the solution came from is something that has been a problem with the manuscript. You just didn't see it. So um, in terms of language, sometimes my editor will go, would a 12-year-old know what this word means? They usually mean I had to look it up, Celine. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> um, and I have to decide, am I in love with the word more than I'm in love with the with the potential reader's comprehension of the text? Mm. But that's always an editorial, way down the line, an editorial decision that I'll make. Now, that was for the books that I was writing for, um, just just for my own pleasure. And then, you know, editing is is the marketing decisions are coming into it. The, the middle grade books, the Wild Magic Trilogy, the Raggedy Witches books, 
they're the first ones I wrote knowing they'd have quite a young audience and I didn't care I just went ahead and I just went ahead and used all the words that I love nice anyway yeah but then before I sent it to the editor, excuse me, because I do I do tend to do quite a lot of drafts and I, I redraft and redraft as I as I keep going. So the editors get quite clean manuscripts from me at the beginning anyway. And I have to say, um, going back over the middle grades manuscripts, I did make linguistic decisions, but I, I don't make decisions where I go, shit, I'm going to have to lose that beautiful sentence because to me, that's a failure of myself as a writer I go and I Mm -hmm. I say okay this sentence is very complex you know that's that's really too complex a sentence what's the most beautiful way that I can present the same thing without the linguistic complexity and so right I feel I've gone to a stage now three middle grade books in three purposely middle grade books in where I feel like I'm making um it's a stylistic choice and it's one that I'm still proud of if you know what I mean Hmm. The, the yeah, stuff yeah. that comes out the end is stuff that I've challenged myself with the simplicity of to make it to make it good prose. Mm. I don't know if that made yeah, any sense. Yeah. No, I get it. I mean, like something can be simple in terms of prose, but without being like, I am a girl. I yeah. live in Ireland. I yeah. like to go for walks and eat porridge. <laughs> Precisely. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, look at Steinbeck. Right. Like, yeah, I mean, look at Steinbeck as opposed to, for example, you know, Charles Dickens or whatever. They're two classical, classic, beautiful ways of writing, but like you couldn't get them further apart. Oh, absolutely. But neither are more or less than the other. Right, right. Yeah, I guess maybe thinking in terms of like minimalism rather than simplicity. Or or, or I imagine if you're trying to approach it with the attitude of like, I better dumb this down for the kids. It's going to be real bad. That's just insulting to the kids if ever anything else. You wouldn't believe when I go into schools, one of the big play. I'm a very very quiet, very private person. I don't like really conventions and stuff like that, although I always enjoy them when when I'm beaten into going to them. Mm -hmm. But one of the joys of having written, having been marketed to young people, is discovering just how amazing they are because, like, you do a lot of school visits and um, I simply can't express how buoyant you come out of most school visits. Hmm. Like, how how convinced that the world is in good hands. It's just, a, it's a terrific experience um, for the most part. Yeah. Talking to kids of, of any age. Like, one of the experiences I had, is, is it okay to tell you one of the experiences I have with the... Oh, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. So, like, Raggedy Witches would be aimed at, say, oh, eight plus. You'll invariably, when you go to a school, you'll have much younger kids in the class. Um, so I, I'd be dealing with kids from, say, let's say six on or maybe seven plus. And um, I go in and I, I talk about I'm talking to them about social justice and I'm talking to them about organizing ourselves on a socialist level. Right. But I'm I'm not saying those things to them. I'm talking to them about what would you do if witches were in power and you weren't allowed to use your magic. Right. Right. That's right. I know where I'm coming from. They think they're talking about how do we combat a repressive witch regime? Okay. 
<laughs> and one of the things that invariably it, it I am I'm I when I use the word invariably I mean that literally there's there hasn't been one single classroom that I've gone into where this hasn't happened I'm talking to very young kids and we've organized ourselves into groups where uh, one of the things about the magic magic the wild magic trilogy is is a certain um certain social group aren't allowed to speak except in rhyme and it's per purposely so that they will uh, not be able to express themselves properly because not everyone is a poet right right so you know if you if you make it so that people can only speak in rhyme then only the best of them uh, in that form of communication can communicate everyone else looks dumb or tongue-tied and we discuss what that does in society when you've divided your when you've been purposely divided into groups like this and one aspect one person one little group of you has been given more power than the other and we we then go on to discuss how you would use your position in society to enable that everyone has an equal voice right Mm -hmm. and of course at the beginning particularly in a mixed group or when you have all boys there are there's a lot of like I would simply get a gun and shoot somebody right <laughs> but the per- the whole point of the raggedy witches universe is you can never win against the witches because they've been trained in magic for their whole lives and you haven't even though you all are born with equal magic so you're always one step behind them in terms of how much physical power you have so we explore all the physical things we would kill them we would beat them up we would do x y and z to them <laughs> Right. And and when that's exhausted, because, you know, it's a thing that and I'm not being sexist, it's just from my experience, particularly groups of boys have to explore before they start talking about other things. Right. Right. Do you know what every single every single class do you know what they end up doing? Don't know. They make an underground newspaper. Ah, an underground newspaper. Yeah. Without prompting. <laughs> I I just like it every time I nearly cry when they come up with this idea. They become journalists. They start telling each other stories for each other. And it's just it's so beautiful. I, I just I never I can never get over that. Mm, that's cool. I know. Where does that come from even? Kids are smarter than I, than adults give them credit for, I think. Absolutely. Point to my story. <laughs> Yeah, they're smarter. Definitely a lot smarter. They're more clued in. They're more likely to stand up for each other when you give them a chance as well. Yeah, yeah, and even about social issues or like serious stuff, I do think a lot of adults kind of have this idea that like all children are completely clueless and 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 just don't have a morbid streak to them, don't know anything about like death or or anything like that. It's like no, not so much. They're they're picking up on a lot at that age. Yeah, it's easily manipulated though, because like you, oh, yeah. as a child, you're innately aware of your own. You're you're two things. You think you'll never die. Right. I like you think you're indestructible, but you're also innately aware of the fragility of your um, comfort. You know, so you, you you know that if mom and dad are gone or whoever your guardians are, are gone, if if certain things are taken from you, they symbolize the end of the world for you because you know how fragile the world is on a on a deep level. Right. And I think that that I think that might be what I was trying to say about not exploiting them. Mm. I think it's easy to get a kick out of scaring kids um, on a non-constructive level. I don't 
mean that everything has to be meaningful. I just mean it's easy to hurt them and it's easy to to make them so scared that they can't function, if you know what I mean. I see. I would not like to do that to kids. I would like the things that they explore via the medium I provide them with to be something that offers them an ability to use their own potential and the potential of people around them. One of the, the workshops I do with kids when I go to libraries is that they build a monster out of their real fears Ooh. yeah so that like and, and I and I tell them about like that my dad was dying with cancer when I wrote resonance and how I, I talk to them sometimes about how that might have fed into the writing of the book because my dad had always told us this story about like um the this scientist wanted to, to this he was trying to explore the will to live and he they slowly filled a tank with water do you know that experiment it was like rat in the tank and they slowly filled the tank with water and all the rats had to do was keep swimming until they got to a ledge and they'd be able to get out of the water but half the rats drowned because they didn't keep swimming right and we used to always refer to my dad as the rat who swam because every year the doctors told us he was going to die and like he lived for 20 years uh, after that Wow. And um, I tell this to the kids and sometimes you can see the librarians and the teachers like, what the fuck is she telling these kids? Yeah. Um, yeah, that's grisly stuff. But I said, yeah, yeah. But like kids have people who die. And I always check beforehand. Right. You know, has anyone had a recent bereavement or whatever? I'm not like, I don't go in blithely <laughs> trampling all over their little lives. But um, then I, I say to them, if I, you know, if my dad was to have been able to build a monster out of the cancer and beat it, he would have. Mm. And we, I say to them, you don't have to tell me what your monsters are. You don't have to tell me where your monster comes from or the reason you're building building it or who he is you can if you want to but let's build a monster out of a real fear I've spent a lot of time before them this before that discussing why certain monsters look a certain way and how racism can have played into it and how sexism can have played into the monsters that we all discuss why witches are presented in a certain way and this kind of stuff Mm. and then they build monsters but then they find a way to beat them and I think that's kind of really healthy again all the boys throw grenades at them until I explain you know (laughs) (laughs) until I say let's let's try and find a different way Uh, usually actually by saying well the monster is possessing your best friend so if you kill the monster you'll kill your best friend so they have to come up something but there's nearly always this real um visceral engagement by the kids but fear with the teachers and the librarians until they see where it's going um, because they're afraid I think that I'm going to exploit the children which is probably you know it's a legitimate fear yeah I have no idea if I'm giving you what you want Raquel no it's good it's good it's, it's thoughtful uh really interesting I, I feel I feel like I'm rambling like crazy here. no it's good I mean it's good stuff it's not necessarily what I expected but I think that Honestly, that's a lot more interesting <laughs> sometimes to go through with that. Well, it, like, is there stuff that you wanted to discuss that I haven't? Is there anything you'd like to ask me that I, I've avoided or anything or been careless with? Let's see. I don't, what about responsibilities? But you already talked about what responsibilities are challenging. Oh, I think the one last thing I wanted to ask was about challenging the reader in, in terms of reading and not just in terms of like social ideas. Like, um, do you write so that you're nudging kids to read up a little bit rather than staying in middle grade or YA forever? 
I mean, in a way, it's almost financially self-sabotaging if you push kids to sort of move on to adult literature instead of becoming those like 36-year-olds who only read YA, you know? <laughs> if you've written a book and you feel that one of the purposes of your book is to help someone move on to something better, then you've not really written the best book you can write. So... <laughs> I feel like there's I feel like there's excellence in all aspects of the market, you know, of the adult market and the children's market, of the fantasy market and the what's considered, you know, lit market. What 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 do you call it? Literature. Literary fiction, I guess. Literary, thank you. Like there is excellence in all those things and there is trash in all those things. <laughs> I don't think it's the purpose of, say, a fantasy writer to write something that they want another a, per, a reader to use in order to level up to whatever that literary thing was you told me. Um, <laughs> well, give me the word and I'll use it properly in the sentence. Literary fiction? Thank you. I don't think it's a fantasy writer's job to write something that they feel is going to help someone to level up to literary fiction any more than, say, it's a romance writer's job to write something that will help someone to level over to horror. <laughs> <laughs> what you write is what you write. And I think maybe if you're writing for children, aim to write the classic, aim to write the thing that that will be still living in their mind when they're 40, that they'll that they'll maybe reference themselves to when they're thinking of stuff you know like that's what I write for I know that sounds possibly on you know if it was mis misconstrued it sounds pompous it's not me saying my work will live with you forever it's me saying right. it's me saying that when you write maybe that's what you should be striving for aim high aim for staying power yeah yeah rather than sort of disposable consumables yeah, which which have their place. I I don't mind. I I don't mind if you want to write Mills and Boone all your life. Hey, people love that. You know, it gives people respite. It it makes them happy. I have no fucking problem with what anyone wants to write, but I don't write to help people level up. Mm. I try and write stuff that for for my reader at the time when they read it is meaningful. It doesn't always work. I mean, look at my two star reviews. Like this is shit. I was so bored. Oh, everything's gonna get a two star review. Exactly. My five-star reviews. The Great Gatsby has a bunch of two and one-star reviews. Yeah, five-star <laughs> reviews are no more or less true than two-star reviews. Okay? It's your intention when you write that. Right. Real thing, I think, uh, for me as a writer. Well, um, we've been talking for about an hour, so let us wind it down. Where can our listeners find your work? Most places, yeah. Uh, all the usual shops. <laughs> All the libraries, uh, support your local library people. Yeah. All, all the all the venues, good or bad, or that you can buy a book from, mine are there. Nice. And do you have a work that's coming out right now or something you're working on right now? Um, well, in the States, the third book in the Raggedy Witches series, the Wild Magic series, is coming out um, in June. Mm. So that would be my latest. Yeah. And I've, nice. just pitched, I've just pitched a new series to my publisher. So we'll see how that goes. Wish me luck. Yeah. Good luck. 
Thank you. That sounds cool. Well, thank you very much for coming on the show. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, that was really neat. And thank you, audience, for listening. Be sure to join us next time when we talk about horror and colonization. Until then, keep writing good. This has been Write Good with Raquel S. Benedict. Hosted by Raquel S. Benedict and produced by Matt Keeley from KS Media LLC. Edited by Sid Oosley. Theme song by Surgery Head. This has been a Kitty Sneezes production. For comments and concerns, please write to us at writegood at kittysneezes.com. That is R-I-T-E-G-U-D at kittysneezes.com. If you'd like to support us, please visit our Patreon at patreon.com slash writegood. Kittysneezes.com in color. <laughs> <laughs>